listeners. Welcome to Impacting the Classroom. I am your host, Marnetta Larimer. Last time, we chatted with the folks at the Prenatal to Three Policy Impact Center. We talked about the cost of quality childcare, but we didn't get to talk about the return on investment. What is the result of funded, high-quality childcare? Today, I'm being joined with Anna Cressy, who, if you listen to the last episode, is revisiting us again. And then we have a new person on our panel, Mackenzie Whips. So Anna, can you reintroduce yourself to our audience? Of course. Glad to be back. So my name is Anna Cressy. I work with the Prenatal to Three Policy Impact Center. At the center, our goal is to sort of share what rigorous research tells us are the most effective policies that states can implement to create the conditions that support children to thrive from the start. The center has identified 12 evidence-based policies and strategies that states can implement to support kids and families. And one of those strategies is childcare subsidies, which is how we started sort of working in this childcare space. I work on the research and evaluation team. We tend to do work with state partners to conduct original research and rigorous evaluations of state policies and programs. And I've worked a lot on childcare in the last year with a couple of different states. So excited to talk about childcare again with you today. Welcome back, Anna. Thank you so much. And Ms. McKenzie, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Yes, I'm so glad to be here too and chatting with Anna about all things childcare. I won't go through the whole spiel that she went through. She said it wonderfully. I'm also a research associate at uh, the Prenatal to Free Policy Impact Center. And yeah, we are all about childcare right now. We're doing a lot of work in that space. I know it's a very important topic that a lot of folks are talking about. So my background is in community health and community psychology. And so I work with trying to transform systems to better support parents with young children. And so we've been working a lot on a lot of childcare projects and we're very excited to talk about it. Wonderful. Welcome. So glad to have you, Mackenzie. As I mentioned earlier, we're continuing our conversation. So if you haven't had a chance to hear from Anna and her colleague, Jen, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one first. So where did we leave off? We talked a lot about why childcare is so expensive. We talked about opportunities to leverage funds. And we talked some about sourcing funds outside of federal funding. But what we didn't get to chat about is the results when childcare does get funding. So that's going to be a focus of our conversation today. So how do we know that huge investments in childcare are worth it? Who would like to start? Well, I can start answering that question, although it's definitely a question that you could spend an entire dissertation or a book answering. <laughs> Just to, to give sort of, you know, a big picture view. I think there's a couple important things that folks need to know about the basic science of the developing child. So the science is really clear that our earliest brain and body development set the stage for later development and well-being in childhood, adolescence, adulthood. And the science is equally clear that our earliest experiences shape that early brain development and body development. So humans are really unique in the degree to which we're like really adaptable to different environments. And what that translates to is brain plasticity really early on in, in a person's life. And that's why it's so important to have the right people and the right settings around us to get us on the right developmental track. 
We need nurturing care. We need safety and predictability, nutritious food, opportunities for early learning. And I think one of the most important things is we need sensitive, responsive, responsive caregiving uh, from adults in our lives. And as I'm saying, like all this list of things that we need, obviously parents provide a lot of that, you know, safety and predictability and sensitive, responsive caregiving. But parents sometimes need to work, often need to work. And so when children are not with parents, they need those same, you know, qualities in their environment and in their caregiving. And so, you know, we know from a lot of research, especially these really fantastic long-term demonstration projects on early childcare settings, things like the Abbasidarian Project or the Perry Preschool Project that really show like the positive impact that high quality early education and care can have when it's implemented like really, really well and kids stay in it for, you know, all of their early years. It can really set children up to thrive well into the future and have, you know, huge returns on investment, right? The problem that, you know, we've run into a lot is scaling these types of really intense, high quality programs um, so that every child in the community can have access to high quality care is, is a really big issue. And so, you know, evaluating other programs that are more, I guess, at scale, Head Start, Early Head Start, that are operating under real world constraints, not under a scientist's every ever watchful kind of eye. The results are much more complex and they're more nuanced and often they're not exactly what we would expect. So I think we can say with some confidence that childcare programs where kids are getting safe, stable, nurturing care and the chance to practice skills that they're going to need in later schooling and in life are all markers of like high quality care. And that high quality care is absolutely better for kids than the alternative. And so, yeah, I think that's that's kind of what we can say about why we think early childhood education and high quality childcare really sets kids up for success. I agree with all of that, Mackenzie, obviously. And I also just want to chime in and add that, yes, there is still, I think, a lot for us to learn about what quality childcare looks like at the state level when, you know, it's happening through publicly funded care, what the threshold for high quality care is to get the positive outcomes, things like that. But I also think when we're thinking about sort of the value of childcare for a state or for a family or the return on investment of childcare, it's important for us to remember that those sort of like positive benefits from the quality piece of the childcare, those long-term educational outcomes that we think come from quality childcare, like more high school graduation, better kindergarten readiness, lower special education receipt. There's um, some evidence for all of those things, but those positive educational outcomes are only one piece of the puzzle and the potential impacts of a stable childcare system are much broader than that. Um, and, and I think also that there are important other important stakeholders at play. So like you touched on this also, Mackenzie, is that we know that parents want and often need to work. For that to happen, we know that availability and affordability of childcare are super important. If childcare isn't available because a parent's in a rural area or because all the childcare programs closed because they couldn't afford to stay open or because they don't have enough staff because wages are too low so they can't take on more kids, for whatever reason, if childcare isn't available, parents may not be able to work. 
Or if childcare is so expensive that it's unaffordable for families, parents may not be able to work or spend a huge portion of their income every month on childcare. So when we think about how the return on investment for childcare is, availability and affordability matter for parents and for kids too. Because when parents can work, it can lift children out of poverty and support the conditions that kids need to thrive at home. And so when parents spend less money on childcare, they have more money to spend on things their kids need, like food and stable housing, all those conditions that you mentioned, Mackenzie. And when parents can afford to send their kid to safe nurturing care, as you said, it also keeps kids safe when their parents are at work. So the quality is like a super important piece. I think we all on this podcast agree about that for sure. But I think also when we're thinking about returns, it's really important to remember the aspects um, that come from parents being able to work, from care being available and affordable. And also that impacts, I know I'm just like going on and on, but it also impacts the economy. So kids, families, but also like, I think national estimates are that the inadequate access to childcare for kids, infants and toddlers costs the nation about $122 billion every year because parents miss work, they quit their jobs, they turn down promotions, they can't focus at work, they all these kind of things. So it all trickles down. Even if you don't have kids, I think childcare plays an important role in the economy that it's, I think, easy to overlook. Thank you for all of that. You know, as you were talking, Mackenzie, there were so many things that resonated with me just off the spot. It felt like a commercial for, you know, Teachstone, right? Because you were really talking about, you know, those classy interactions, right? Class being this research-based tool that really helped to define what, you know, high-quality interactions look like in a classroom that really helped to support students and their ability to thrive in their spaces well beyond the time that educators have them. Sensitive, responsive caregiving, right? Like, so let's talk some about the role that class played in some of that return on investment in the work that you've been doing. So in the Virginia project, which is where we sort of did this estimate of the return on investment, we don't specifically evaluate the class. So that's, I think, the first important thing to do. Virginia, or to know, Virginia is using the class as part of their quality program. It's called VQB5, I think is their quality improvement program, which includes, unlike a lot of state quality, Q, quality ratings improvement systems, QRIS, a lot of states use QRIS systems to evaluate childcare quality. And sometimes that can tie into subsidy reimbursement rates, things like that. And for a lot of states, they look at class interactions, teacher-child interactions, and use this sort of class um, rating system. And Virginia does have that as part of their quality improvement initiative. But when we are looking at the impact of Virginia's investments, we didn't use any of the specific class numbers. We're thinking more about sort of like the long-term potential, I think, of the system, in part because they're in Virginia, they're still rolling all of that out. I think this is the first year where participation in their quality ratings and improvement system is mandatory. So it's something they're working towards to sort of build the quality of childcare in Virginia. It's something they know is important that they're putting money and resources into, but and have done in different ways in the past, but is when we did our return on investment, we're really thinking about the goal of the system, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I just wanted to, this is going to be my first of many plugs for this, but as Anna mentioned, this isn't neither of sort of the projects that, that we've led um, to look at some of this um, system transformation and reform efforts that have happened in the childcare space. 
have been evaluations of programs. And so I think that's important to understand too. I think class is a fantastic tool to evaluate all sorts of initiatives as well as basic science to understand what's going on in communities and what's going on in classrooms. And this is my big plug for all states who really been experimenting a lot in the past couple of years with this large influx of resources from pandemic era funding and childcare. Um, states have done an enormous number of different strategies, tried different reforms to try to improve quality, affordability, access of childcare. And states now need to evaluate their work. <laughs> they need to go into their own backyards and they need to find out what happened to that funding and what worked and what didn't work. And it's this provides this huge influx of resources, really did provide an opportunity to try to understand what resources can go where and what's going to make the biggest impact for kids and for educators and for providers. And so that's like my first plug, but I will plug that again, I'm sure, <laughs> that truly we can use the evidence base to theorize what are going to be the long-term outcomes and what are going to be the long-term return on investment for these sorts of large investments in childcare that have been made. But states really do need to do high-quality, rigorous evaluations in order to see what's happening in their own context. So when you speak of that, where would you have a program start, right? Like, what would be a good starting point for them to start that evaluation process? It depends on where the state is, right? Every state and every community is starting from a different place. If they already have started reform efforts, you know, that's not the ideal time to start an evaluation. Ideally, you'd want to be sort of collecting data and looking at the strengths and needs of the community before reforms take place. And then again, as reforms are rolling out, and then again, later after reforms are more stabilized and continue to be sustained and continue to follow kids long term. And some states are already sort of set up with their data systems to be able to do that sort of longitudinal evaluation approach. I know in the state of New Mexico that I worked really closely with, they worked really hard to get their child level integrated data system together to be able to follow kids and to see what their outcomes are. And to see what programs are utilizing and when and for how long and the quality of those programs over time. And so they're going to be really set up in a great way to be able to evaluate um, all of these reform efforts in the future. Other states haven't gotten there yet, but, you know, it's sort of like planting a tree. The best time to start is 10 years ago, but the second best time is today. And so I think starting the evaluation process with really solid data systems and understanding your own theory of change, what you think is going to be happening from these reforms in your community is a really important place to start as well. Wonderful. Anna, did you want to add anything? I think Mackenzie did a great job of covering that. I just wanted to add only that I think Virginia is another state that has been doing a really thoughtful job about understanding the role that data can play in sort of making these long-term changes, not only because it can help them know how to spend their money well, but it also provides like long-term justification, right? Like not every state has a whole bunch of people really excited to spend a lot of money on childcare. So sometimes you sort of need to justify continuing to spend the money that you're spending. Virginia, for example, did 
several years ago, Educator Incentives, which they now have as part of a program called Recognize B5. The goal, they sort of saw that educator turnover was a huge problem, having a hard time keeping educators. And so they provided educators, they did a randomized control trial where they provided $1,500 across three increments to educators, to some educators. And they found that educators who received the trial had half the turnover rate as educators who didn't receive the incentive. And so they were able to take that information and say like, okay, clearly money matters for these educators in our state. That makes sense. And they've just kept putting more money into that program, building it more and more. And now I think in 2023, in this 2023 to 2024, this fiscal year, they are offering $3,000 financial incentives to eligible educators. And so it's sort of, I think, a good example of when you do sort of thoughtfully measure the impact of something, you kind of know, great, I'm going to just keep plugging away at this. And they, yeah, and sort of similarly, they're really, I think, thinking about how to tie young kids' experience in early childhood education to long-term educational outcomes to continue building those arguments, which I think will be helpful for all states. Important for the states themselves, because as Mackenzie said, like state context is so important. The results in one state may not be exactly the same in another state because of all different reasons, but any information I think is helpful with these big reforms. Wonderful. Thank you for that. You know, we've been talking about New Mexico and Virginia, and I want to give some space to get a very full picture, like in a whole picture of, (laughs) right, these states and the work that they've been doing and what those return on their investments, you know, have turned out to be or what they're working toward. And so let's start with New Mexico, right, and what they've been working on, what they've been going through and like what these outcomes are. So that way we have a nice whole picture instead of these pieces that we keep, these beautiful pieces we keep inserting in separate places. So let's start with New Mexico. Great. Yeah. I'm always happy to talk about New Mexico. (laughs) They've been like a true leader in this childcare reform space. And so I definitely want to give them like all the props in the entire universe all the time. (laughs) So I think I want to back up just like two steps and sort of explain what the childcare crisis is. So obviously the pandemic brought the childcare crisis to a lot of people's top of mind, but childcare was in crisis well before the pandemic hit, right? So providers are not able to keep their doors open because they're not able to charge families enough to have high quality programs that are sustainable and they still can't pay their teachers any more than poverty wages in a lot of places. And so Families can't afford more. Educators can't make any less. Providers are caught in the middle. It's sort of like a gridlock system, right? And so a new governor came in 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 New Mexico, and this is one of her big areas that she wanted to focus on. And so even before the pandemic hit, they really got to work early. In, In 2019 is when a lot of things started kicking off. And they did, you know, a number of different things that I think are really important to talk about. So there's sort of like big fundamental funding and government infrastructure changes that New Mexico sort of started with. They created a whole new early childhood education and care department as a cabinet level position under the governor. And that sort of became the hub of all things birth to five. Well, really prenatal to five, I should say. And so that moved everything to one place so the right people were in the right room talking about things to really be able to support families with young children. So that was one of the first things that they did. And they also started moving gears to get permanent sources of funding, 
for a lot of these early childhood programs, including childcare. And so they were able to get a constitutional amendment passed, for example, to use the permanent school funds or the land grant funds to be able to fund early childhood education. They created a whole new early childhood fund based on sort of a state windfall of like extra taxes and and money that they had from minerals and other sources that New Mexico had a windfall. And so some of that money went towards early childhood education funding. And so they did a lot of this work in sustainable funding and infrastructure first. And they got those wheels moving, which I mean, those those policies take really long. They take years to really come to fruition, but they started them early. And then after that, they started making sort of targeted reforms. And they did a number of different things. I kind of urge people to go um, to our website at the Prenatal Three Policy Impact Center and read our full report because it's really astonishing that just the sheer number of things that New Mexico managed to accomplish in the childcare space in just a couple of years. So you can definitely go and, and read about like each and everything so you exhaustively documented it. But in general, there's like a couple of big buckets that they they work to do. Um, so they reformed their childcare subsidy system, which I know Anna talked a lot about last week. And so they did a couple of things, they expanded eligibility so that most low-income and middle-income families are now eligible for childcare subsidies in New Mexico, meaning that they can access free childcare if they're able to get a subsidized childcare slot. They also changed the way that they reimburse providers for providing subsidized care, which hopefully will incentivize more providers to offer subsidized slots so that all these newly eligible folks can take advantage of free childcare. They got rid of co-payments for families. So again, that childcare for subsidized families are free. They implemented a wage supplementation program that boosted educator pay $3 an hour for a really large portion of the early childhood education workforce. And they just, they did so many things at once. They sort of threw, threw everything that they could to try to fix this gridlock system and um, to write the market failure that um, has sort of been happening in every state in this country. Um, so yeah, I think that that kind of gives a, a pretty good picture. But again, we have you know nice timelines and things in the report. So if folks are interested in learning more, definitely go to our website and find out more. Wonderful. Yeah, we definitely will include that report, you know, with this delivery. Is there anything else you want to tell us about New Mexico's story? So I think you know, states can learn a lot, I think, from just looking at what another state has done to approach like a really intractable problem like this market failure in childcare. Yeah, I think they moved on so many fronts, though. It, it can be challenging for states to say, I think it would be hard for us to, to hand another state a blueprint like New Mexico and say, you know, do everything at once, please and thank you. <laughs> Not every state has the same, you know, political will, and not every state has the same resources that New Mexico may have at any given point to throw at the child care problem. But I think it is helpful to see how long it took to do some of these reforms and some of them that can be done really quickly and some of them that take just more time and investment in, in figuring out what happens, what has to happen first before you know, more targeted reforms can happen. And that's sustainable funding, that's infrastructure development, that's data system development and things like that. So yeah, I think states can learn a lot from what New Mexico did. Yeah, I heard so many beautiful things, specifically, you know, when you're thinking about access 
right? Because we do know, as we stated, those early intervention, that early care, that very supportive quality care for children and that access to that care while children, while parents are having to work, we know how impactful and important that is. So allowing more space and ability to have, be able to tap into that is so important. So with all those things, can you, you know, I'm going to read the report again, but can you tell us like what some of those outcomes were? Like, how did, like, tell, tell us about that. So again, this is my plug for Mexico <laughs> included. States need to evaluate. This is um, the work that we did as a center um, was to exhaustively document these, these wide ranging, large number of reforms that New Mexico did to transform the child care system. and to develop a theory of change in order to, we sort of dove deep into the literature to see, based on the literature that already exists in other places other than New Mexico, what are the likely outcomes of these different reforms all happening, you know, at the same time or consecutively. And to try to see how the different pieces of the puzzle fit together and how um, impacts uh, of reform aimed at affordability may have unintended consequences for quality. Um, and vice versa. And so really trying to understand how the system fits together as a whole. And so that states can then use this theory of change at the system level to sort of theorize, you know, okay, if we turn on this lever, but not this lever, what do we think is likely to happen? And it sort of gives a framework for um, state leaders and advocates to be able to do that. But we, ha- we don't have outcomes in New Mexico yet. But they haven't evaluated. And so Fingers crossed, I'm really hoping that we do. I'm looking forward to seeing what their outcomes actually are for kids and for educators and for providers. But yeah, this isn't the this isn't the evaluation, unfortunately. I love it, right? It's the story that has yet to be like completely written, right? Well, <laughs> cliffhanger, <yeah>. cliffhanger. <laughs> love it. Um, I can only imagine with the things that they put in place, what the end of that story. Well, not even an end. It's a continuous thing, but what that's going to look like. Thank you so much for telling us about New Mexico and really elevating the work that they're doing there and giving some very actionable things for other organizations to, you know, take advantage of and like think about as they're building their systems. Yeah. So elevating New Mexico, Virginia. <laughs> Are you ready? Let's hear about Virginia. Of course. So like New Mexico, Virginia really set out to think about child care reform as a system of changes that needed to happen in concert with one another. So they did a lot of things similar to New Mexico, but mostly on a slightly smaller scale. So they raised income eligibility for subsidies, not as high as New Mexico did, but still pretty high. 85% of state median income, but that equates to a, a little over 300% of the federal poverty level um, for kids under five. They committed to funding um, all eligible kids who applied for subsidies. So they basically eliminated their state wait list. They raised their subsidy reimbursement rates to the true cost of quality. So they did sort of all of these pieces in concert with one another. And they also invested in quality, including financial incentives for educators to try to retain educators. So did a lot of pieces to try to think about stabilizing the childcare system and expanding access to affordable care for kids in Virginia. 
Unlike New Mexico, one piece they're still missing is sustainable funding. So Virginia took a really big and really cool risk, which is they used the temporary emergency funding from the federal government during the pandemic to invest in system reform. A lot of states did really creative things with that money, but a lot of states were afraid to do too much because they knew it would go away, right? And it's one thing to say, here, now we've raised your wages to whatever, $15 an hour, but now we're taking it back because we ran out of federal money, right? Or you were eligible for a childcare subsidy and now you're not. That kind of change, if you can't sustain it, is scary. But Virginia did it anyway, right? They really took a bold risk, I think, which is really cool because no matter what happens, they did provide care to these kids during this time. So they're still looking for figuring out the path forward to sustaining all of their changes after when the federal money runs out. And so the report that we did in Virginia was we worked with an organization in Virginia called the Virginia Early Childhood Foundation. And they really wanted us to sort of quantify what, given what Virginia did, what is that offering to the state of Virginia? Like, what are they getting out of this money well spent? So we looked at what they spent in 2023, basically fiscal year 2023. So we looked at that money relative to what they spent before the influx of of pandemic funds. It's a difference about $309 million. That $309 million provided affordable quality care to 11,151 children under the age of five, as well as about 4,000 kids over the age of five. So those families were able to access care because of those investments. And using that information, thinking about the number of kids who had access to affordable care and the money spent that can allow parents to go back to work. We used basically, we did a literature review to understand the evidence that's out there. Um, We created a theory of change to understand how, understand the pathways through which affordable care, affordable high quality care can impact across the life course. And then we tried to put dollar amounts to anything that we could to really help so that Virginia could really understand the value of the investment that they made. We know that the value of, you know, ensuring that children can thrive from the start is sort of, it's hard to put a dollar amount on that, right? Like, I think most of us, at least on this podcast, would agree that we want that no matter what, even if it costs money, we probably still want it, right? But the reality is that it is usually a good investment. And in this case, childcare is. So we find that the money that Virginia spent allows almost 11,000 moms to go back to work, 10,710 moms can become employed, which generates between 320, at least $320 million in income for their families. That generates tax revenue for the state. It stimulates the economy. Families who already had subsidies spend less money on childcare because they sort of also change their co-payment rates. And parents who were already working and paying for childcare are also spending less money on childcare. So we also see an increase in disposable income, which again is better for families and also better for the economy. Because again, parents are spending that money on other things. We see uh, reduced child maltreatment. We see more than 5,000 kids lifted out of poverty. I say we see, we're estimating, <laughs> we estimate <laughs> that we would see that there will be reduced child um, maltreatment, more than 5,000 kids lifted out of poverty under the age of five. And we know that poverty is a predictor for a lot of tough stuff across the life course, right? So lifting kids out of poverty has huge impacts. Being in poverty your entire life, like born into poverty and spending your childhood in poverty um, is costs about $1.8 million per child. So the national cost of child poverty is about $5 trillion, I think. 
it's an expensive thing. So if we're thinking just dollars to dollars, lifting kids out of poverty packs an economic punch, um, or at least it has the potential to. And then on top of that, if, if the quality of care these kids are receiving is high quality, we also estimate that it's going to help them do better across the rest of their educational career. Basically, we can think about childcare as an intervention that sort of happens early in life that's supporting kids to have the conditions they need to thrive both at home and when not at home. And this can sort of shift kids onto a different trajectory and support better outcomes across the life course. Better school readiness, lower grade retention, less special education receipt, higher rates of high school graduation, higher rates of college attendance, and better income in their adulthood. So it's a pretty exciting prospect, I think. You know, I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around the long-term educational stuff, and I think that's fair. And I also think, you know, a lot of other factors come into play there, right? But um, let me just think even about the impact of parents being able to work, being able to bring income into their homes and into the economy. I think we can see what a big difference investments like this can make in states. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> Lots of work. And how much fun to be able to like document that, right? Because sometimes you can just say whatever you want to say, but it's really, you know, <laughs> looking at those numbers, you know, and you, those are high numbers, 11,150, right? Like that is a huge impact, you know, 11,000 mothers being able or parents being able to go to work because they have some place for their children to go, right? And how it impacts the economy. So we really have to work together to make this work. And then when you talked about children who are living in poverty, right? And how it impacts us as, you know, economically as a nation, why would you not invest in early childhood? Like, you know what I mean? Like that is a, a plug you know, I'm taking McKinsey's words, that's a plug in itself, right? Like, so if you're a selfish person, that, I mean, for selfish reasons, right? I could invest in this so that I can minimize the other costs in supporting, you know, those families, so. Yeah, I think sometimes the numbers are so big, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. And I think also when you put dollar signs on things, sometimes that's also kind of complicated for people to understand, not understand, but like, just like believe maybe, but I, I agree. I think this report is really a really concrete way to think about these issues, which I think is really helpful. So sort of like Mackenzie did, I also really urge people to go to our website and read the report. There's also just a short, short brief. If you aren't up for a, you know, 80 page <laughs> report, I hear you, I get it. <laughs> but, but there's also a short brief that sort of gives you the highlights. Um, yeah, I think it's um really important and exciting information. Is it on Audible if I don't want to read it? <laughs> it should be. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, just thinking about different ways people learn, right? And taking information. <laughs> we talked a lot of times when we live in this space, we use a lot of words that are jargon words and things that we're used to for our listeners who are really trying to grasp some of the things, because there were some definitions and like, I understand what you're saying. We talked a lot about theory of change, right? So if, an, you know, organization systems are going to, you know, really start with there, can you talk to us about what that is so that our audience knows what that means? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about theories of change. So there's not necessarily clear guidance, right? We know there's a lot of evidence that we have that sort of this demonstration project told us that in this context, X input gave us this outcome, right? Um, or in this state, 
we turned on this policy, and this is what we found five years later. There's there's lots of information and evidence on what can work uh, in the childcare sort of reform space, but there's still major holes <laughs> in the evidence base, and because we have yet to get like a functional childcare system in this country kind of up and running. There's really like not a whole lot of guidance right now for states to do, to create a system that that is functional and equitable for folks. So theories of change are sort of really fundamentally useful for this exact reason. So well-developed theory of change that's based on the existing evidence base can sort of explain and predict how changes in one part of a system ultimately go on to impact all sorts of other parts of a system. So, you know, this policy change will lead to this small impact, which leads to this small impact, which leads to this small impact, with which changes this impact. It's a lot of boxes and arrows that you often will see that can that can look confusing. But really, what it's really trying to do is explain the pathways through which an action, a policy or a program can lead to the outcomes that you care about, that you care to measure. And there's a couple of things that are really useful about theories of change. One, I mean, for an academic like like Anna and I, we really like them because we like to predict and explain things <laughs> and to evaluate them. But it can also help state leaders and policymakers and advocates to sort of plan the implementation of new policies and programs. It can potentially show folks where the most likely roadblocks are like are could potentially lose. So. We know that this policy is likely to impact you know, eligibility is likely to eligibility for childcare subsidies, for example. We can make lots more folks eligible for childcare subsidies. But unless there are more childcare subsidized slots in the system too, those children can't access you know, subsidized care. So it's not really going to, it's just going to make wait lists grow. It's not going to actually change affordability for childcare at population level, if that makes sense. And also, as researchers selfishly, it sort of helps us be able to organize the evidence base and understand, like, okay, we don't have clear evidence for like this pathway. If providers are given a lot more money in the subsidy system, we don't know necessarily that they are going to use that money to pay provide or to pay educators living wages without a mandate to do so. And so, like, that's like research that is on us. We need to do that work in order to understand how the system really fits together. So there's a lot of different ways that a well-developed theory of change can guide research and can guide people on the ground to be able to ultimately make a difference for, for families of young kids. So yeah, they're helpful. <laughs> Wonderful. Anna, did you want to add anything to her beautiful explanation of theory of change and the importance and the why? I honestly don't think there's anything I could add. That was so beautifully expressed, Mackenzie. No notes. Yeah. <laughs> that was great, right? You know, because sometimes, you know, we talk and we forget about, you know, making things accessible, you know, for, um, so I appreciate you um, helping with that. We don't have very much time left together. And I always like to give my guests an opportunity to, you know, have one more, have another, one last plug before they go. So I would love for each of you to have some parting words, knowledge, wisdom, action steps for organizations and, you know, leaders who are listening to this that would support our field in this work that you're doing. 
Sure. So I think the big takeaway for me is like early childhood matters and states can make a difference. They can make a difference in a lot of different ways. And childcare is one of them. I think really identifying the needs within a specific state and, and recognizing the role that childcare has to play on across a lot of different pieces is really important. And I said this last time, but I'll say it again, childcare is a good investment. So um, there's no downside to investing in childcare. And so really being thoughtful and being sort of brave as a state to move forward with that, I think is just good for everybody. Thank you. I would just add a second plug for states. Please evaluate the programs, all these reform efforts that you spent money on and time on and resources on, and that really have potentially transformed your childcare system and your communities. I think you need to find out what's going on, talk to people. And I will say, when you evaluate all these childcare reform strategies that you've been undertaking and experimenting with, I'm going to make a really hard pitch for please center the voices of parents of young children and the voices of the educators and caregivers that are actually hands-on in the classroom with young children. And they'll tell you things that (laughs) you need to hear and maybe hard to hear, but it's really important to center those voices. Yeah, I agree with all of that. (laughs) You know, it's hard to, you know, you can't speak from a hill without being on the ground first, (laughs) right? And carrying that stuff up the hill (laughs) with you. So those voices and experiences are what drives the work that we do and are important. So love that. This was lovely. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Mackenzie and Anna. This was so great. I think that everyone is going to love this episode. As they stated, there are a couple of research articles that, you know, we need to look over, just kind of ingest and just adore and hopefully get inspired by the work that's happening in New Mexico and Virginia. Quick reminder, registration is open for our annual conference, Interact Class Summit. It's taking place in sunny San Diego, California, April 3rd through the 4th. This is the place to be if you want to know more about class, class implementation, and impact. And if you have a story to share, we are accepting proposals until December 1st. And you can visit teachstone.com slash interact to register or submit a proposal. You can find today's episode and transcript on our website, teachstone.com slash podcast. And as always, friends, behind great leading and teaching are powerful interactions. Let's build that culture together. Thank you to today's team. Marnetta Larimer is our host. Our producers are Isabella Henriksen and me, Megan Cornwell. Editing help is from Castos. You can find Impacting the Classroom on our website at teachstone.com slash podcasts, where you can also listen to our other show, Teaching with Class. Impacting the Classroom is a Teachstone production.